Hello everyone and welcome to another one of our quarantine edition episodes of the SWW Show. I'm Mike, today I have with me, not AJ, but another special guest. Could you please tell me your name and what the game you're working on is? Hi, my name is Christian Latour and I'm a project manager at Battlegoat Studios. The title we're currently working on is called Galactic Ruler. That is the most... The, your last name. I feel like people just have to say it a lot when they meet you. I feel like just because that's the that is the like most like French last name. <laughs> well, I'm French Canadian, so uh, yeah, it works well. Canada, <laughs> perfect. So, could you tell us about Collector Ruler? Like, what is what is your elevator pitch of the game? Um, and I, you see, I should have that totally practiced at this point, but we're buried in the development of it. I'll, I'll start with a little bit of history to say where, how we got to where we are. So Battlegoat Studios has been developing games for 20 years now. It was probably about 2000 that the company launched in its current iteration. And we began making geopolitical strategy games, a series called Supreme Ruler. And we've done that for quite a number of years, all earthbound games, uh, historical to modern day. Recently, and in fact, this has always been in the back of our minds. I remember when I joined the company in 2001, the owners were like, oh, we're going to do one planet-bound game and then space. Uh, 20 years later, we've made multiple planet-bound games, and now what we're looking at is Galactic Ruler, a game where players can start as a faction, play against random alien factions in a space game where you start at planet level, from planet, you can go up to system level to see the other planets in your system. And from system level, you can go up to galaxy level to move between systems. All this in a game where you can do strategic level space battles and strategic level planet battles and manage your faction. That's a little long for an elevator pitch still, but we got time to refine that. That is... Uh, so obviously, so I follow, I follow tangentially, follow the strategy base, and definitely I would argue that Supreme Ruler has come up in different discussions throughout the years and the different iterations. Um, so it's very interesting that like you guys wanted to, as a company, get to this space side thing like years ago. Yes. <laughs> Which is, okay. We had a few of our forum users who noticed many, many years ago that we had registered the domain name for it. And they're like, oh, but other things just, it, we just had so much support from the community for what we were already creating. And each time that we created a game, we sort of saw the next step. We're like, oh, if we evolve in this way, we can do another in the series. And so it just kept pulling us in those directions. Immediately, I got asked, as we get kind of deeper into this game, then, is there a concern, like, internally about then pivoting to this thing, if you guys are very known for this one series of stuff similar to it? I guess you mean in terms of will the community be able yeah. to pivot with us, that yeah. sort of thing? Yeah, because even though a part of it's vocal, like doesn't mean the whole community is vocal. Right. And there was definitely some discussion about that. Uh, and I suppose I should mention, because you asked me at the opening there, what we're working on. And while it's true that we're actively working on Galactic Ruler, uh, there, there's another little piece of the puzzle in there. But I'll answer your question first, and it'll lead into that answer. So were we concerned that the community would walk away if we switched from these earthbound 
modern day and historical games. There was some concern. We had some discussions on the forums over the years. We knew that the type of game we create in terms of the strategic experience we deliver is pretty unique. There's not too many other people out there. And that, in some ways, is a marketing uh decision that we make on purpose like it's a business decision that we know we're never going to sell quantities of the game that a triple a title would sell but by keeping our scope narrow we can get a reasonable sense of what we can expect to generate in terms of revenues and just build a game that fits that size and still have enough to keep the company going because of the size of the community, because of how involved people were, we felt comfortable that a good portion would be willing to follow us along and experience the type of gameplay that we create in a space environment. We also, with every new title, you sort of hope that you're going to get a certain degree of discoverability. And because we deliver to a certain niche, the total number of eyeballs on the product doesn't have to be as big as a, as a AAA company. So we've got a little more flexibility there. Now, what that, sorry, uh, if I can add one more piece, what's been interesting since we announced this, so I guess it's been well, almost a year now since we publicly said what we were working on. Probably two years, people knew we were working on something, but a year ago, we actually told them what it was. Since then, we've continued to work on our, what we'd consider our flagship product right now is Supreme Ruler Ultimate. More recently, we did a Supreme Ruler Great War, a World War One addition to it, but Ultimate still is the one that drives most of the community. And the response about Galactic Ruler was really good. Lots of people saying, oh, that's really great. But there was always this undertone of, oh, that sounds really cool. I wish I was getting more Supreme Ruler. And the, the number of times it happened has led myself and the owner to have some big discussions. And we probably about a month ago now, we released, yeah, just before we all got shoved into quarantine, we released a YouTube video where we announced uh, unofficially that there's going to be another Supreme Ruler game. We don't fully know yet what that's going to look like. And we've got a number of ideas. And in our video, we talked to the community directly about the fact that we, we just, we don't have the resources right now to keep working on updates for Supreme Ruler. It is getting an update right now. It's in the, the latest update is in testing. It's available on Steam as a beta. But we've announced to the community, that's the last update we're making. The game is six years old. And we have continued updating it through all this time. There's just no resources left for us to get staff to work on that project. However, if we officially say we're making a new Supreme Ruler, that's a new budget stream. It's a new allocate money to that and get a sense for what it's going to generate and and tackle it again. So I know we're going to get to Galactic Ruler in a second, but I'm just very curious because I think there's something to be said about, and I think I think it's paradox. It kind of fundamentally shifted the nature of these games in this direction of when mm. you release one and it goes like, okay, now we support it for six years, like you guys just said. Is that a thing that you guys are like, are you, are you like, do you enjoy doing that? Or is that like you wish you was the almost the older days of like, oh no, we're on this project now for two years versus like the eight we're on it. Right. Well, to the do I enjoy it, do we enjoy it? I really think it depends on the day and it depends on the feature. That's fair. That there, I still enjoy playing our game. That said, the, a couple weeks ago, as part of the testing, I started up Supreme Ruler Ultimate 
decided to play Spain in the World War II era and just if as a secondary country, I could take advantage of stuff. Uh, and it was fun to still play. Uh, working on some of these features, we get to add things that were on our wish list. And again, because as a studio, uh, in this day and age, a lot of people, when they're developing games, they rely on tools such as Unity or the Unreal Engine and a lot of third-party um, plugins to be able to develop their game. Because we started in 2000, which predates Unity and Unreal wasn't quite the thing it is, our games are built on our own engine. So when I look back at our backlog, ideas of potential things we can put into it, I've got tasks, tickets that are more than a decade old, things that we went 12 years ago, 16 years ago. I'm like, oh, I'd love to see this in the game. We can't right now. All right, shelf the idea. So the last update we did, I think just before Christmas, the game added waypoints, which is not groundbreaking for strategy games. We've seen some really good strategy games implement waypoints, but it was never part of our engine. And when we finally got it in, our lead programmer came to us and said, okay, I just closed that ticket. That was a 14-year-old task. And, and I really enjoy when we, can, when we can add to the core mechanic of the game in a way like that that really ups the gameplay. I like it. But there's a big difference to the way we're doing it and the way Paris Box DLCs. I'm sure everybody knows it. That if you want to go out today and get something like Crusader King with all its DLCs, well, I hope you had a really good birthday because you need like 200 bucks cash to get every DLC. And, and it's and, and you load in that game. Also, you like those 50 systems. DLCs. Usually, the way we fund that, as a, to talk a bit of business side of things, is that we've over the years we've made sure that we after the release of one Supreme Ruler title. We never went too many more years before the release of the next. So if we released free updates, it wasn't that big a deal because what we were building there became the foundation for the next iteration. And the next iteration could fund a lot of that past development and lead us into the next one. Um, but it is, it is tricky to know how far you go with the product and how much you support it. Uh, I will, again, from a business standpoint, say that an advantage we've had has been uh, somebody uh, distributing our games through Steam. Steam provides us as indie developers a lot of insight into how our products are moving. And we generally just put it back to the community to say, as long as there's interest, as long as the games are still generating revenue, we have a sense for what is the money going into a certain project, we can accept devoting a certain amount of work to that project. I hope that makes sense for how we approach that. A thousand percent. That, that, I was just very curious because obviously I do a lot of game stuff and, and I could see after like years, you're like, okay, I need to get off this product before I like <laughs> go shoot someone. Like it's a, just it's simple. You I, get so headspace in it. Yeah. The equipment file that we use. So the database of military units, land, air, sea, that has progressed with us. So that began as a spreadsheet sometime in the year 2000. And it still is evolving and growing. And I have spent years and years with that file. I am so sick of that file. I never want to see that file again. Then let's, I'm going to say, let's get us onto your new game then to get you back in the good headspace. So, oh, 
So yeah, so let's get this in this new game gives in the good headspace then. Sure. So Galactic Ruler, um, fundamentally, obviously, the biggest change I would argue is the is the nature of instead of in a location in a very set time period. Now we're in a broader location, um, which which obviously I think leads to very interesting hangups of how you define a map on those and how you make sure that like. You still feel like it's grand in scope, but like obviously you guys have limited resources. Yeah. You can't just ten times the game size and go, "We're good." Uh, and that's very, very true because that also goes to performance. That uh, our engine has always been known for a, its sort of no limits uh, criteria. That in a, a supreme ruler game, you could have on one map millions of units across two hundred enemy factions, sort of thing. So as we looked at the new game and we're like, "Okay, how do we balance some of that?" One of the advantages we get is because we're creating fictional planets uh the scale of any one planet does not have to be as large as the earth so when you're dealing with one planet the scale can be a little bit reduced and it still feels strategic uh also because we're trying to do this planets per faction because uh, a supreme ruler game you had so many factions on one planet here you're looking at one faction to start on a planet so again you just don't need that same size but when you talked before asking me about how do we bring the community along, one of the things that we feel is important for bringing the community along is still having that sense of a Supreme Ruler game. You're still talking hex-based movement. You're still talking a location on the map that contains a central complex with upgrades around it. Um, and again, anything I say now, uh, I want to put the caveat that we might change our minds on it. But right now, it, it, it seems to be very much achieving a Supreme Ruler feel where you are connected to a hundred other small maps and you can move around through them and sort of focus with. Uh, now, anybody who's followed our dev blogs will also know that the we're very cognizant of the complexity level we create. That if we make it too complex, even our really in-depth players are starting to go, whoa, that's too much. Um, some of the changes that we've accepted to make... Uh, most notably is around the production, the economy stuff, that everything used to be in a Supreme Ruler game money-based, that money was the foundation for all equali for equalizing all assets. Uh, money's out, that it's going to be commodity-based, uh, and that the total number of commodities is down from the 11 we used to use to a system that uses four commodities of agriculture, raw materials, which would essentially be the ore, metals, and all the rest of that, energy and finished goods uh again final names on those things to come uh but by reducing some of that the the hope is that we can use the parts of our game mechanic that are most interesting to the players focus on those highlight those enhance those and that's what we're thinking so far so to dig into the commodities thing because because I'm going to make a generalization uh, just from, from talking to people on that, too, of when I say into this space, because you guys go, I argue, into the much more hardcore side of the space. Mm. A lot of people like a lot of numbers to deal with and a lot of unique things and stats to track. And I know there's a limit always, but they, they like a certain amount of those. Do you guys feel, or is your community said otherwise, that when you guys lowering this numbers, is the game still complex enough with having to track resources and those kind of decisions to make? It's a very fair question. And yeah, the, the forums have chatted with us a little bit and sort of brought that up. And again, because we're early stage, it's hard to have some really in-depth discussions on what it's going to achieve. One of the things that we've felt uh, 
is the strength of the engine that we do, the depth in those numbers to us a lot of times sits with the units and the combat that the, when you're playing a game of Supreme Ruler, which is always my baseline, uh, and you compare land unit to an air unit in combat and you start to complex, soft target, hard target, low air, mid air, high air, that the statistics we used around combat were what we judge put a lot of the interest in how everything uh, evolved in in a, a game of Supreme Ruler. That is still there. The mechanic behind the combat at a planetary level is at this point unchanged. Might be some minor tweaks, but that will feel very much the same. The commodity stuff... I'm one of those people who does tend to work with a lot of the 11 commodities and track what's going on with all of them. But we're now talking about asking players to do that across not just one planet, not just five planets, possibly dozens and dozens of planets. If you're going to try and track numbers, the total amount you can keep in your head is there's going to be limits to that. Our hope is reduced per planet, but so many more planets still creates that positive feedback when a player can go, oh, okay, I'm what we call max, min-maxing, that, okay, I know this planet is the one that's generating the first resource. This one is where I'm getting the second, but it's drawing on the first. This one, I'm getting a lot of the fourth, but I need more. So I, we still have the hopes of creating that mathematical creativity in the player's head, and at the same time, not pushing it too complex, that we always worry when people ask us for new features in the existing title, like, okay, that sounds interesting, but we have a certain bar for complexity. And if we add new features, it becomes more and more and more complex. For a number of years, we've tried to talk to the community and make them aware that our goal had always been where we added complexity in one place, we intended to reduce it in another to keep the overall experience at the same level. And that still is our goal as we're doing the creation of the new game. And that that is a I think a very interesting way to define it. I think a very I think it's a very fair way and acceptable way to define it from the point of view of like here is our bar. We're always gonna have our systems equal whatever the percentage difficulty is, like seventy percent. So if I have to add here, I have to minus here, because otherwise you you guys are already in a very as a niche space and you don't want to make yeah. it too niche, it would be the best way of putting it. Exactly. And as much as we like this niche of the market that we're in and we're happy to feed that, we would like to see it grow, not necessarily by making our game less complex, but by being better and better at introducing complexity so you can bring in more players. Uh, I'm an an avid board game player myself, and I always think of board games that are what what I'd call, uh, I'm going to draw a blank on the the word, games to introduce people that I'm always looking for new games that I can tease people more normally would have played more towards the stuff that I enjoy. I feel like we do that same sort of thing with our, with our video games that all the battle goat titles try and encourage people to tackle more complex situations than they normally would have. On that road second, because I think I think board games have gone through an interesting evolution. I think games are starting to get there too in recent years. Of they have gone from like board games, obviously, I'd say twenty years ago had the like hundred page rule book. Where now, mm-hmm. if I open up even Catan or Seven Wonders, which are that I'd say that teasing window we're talking about, that rule book is now twenty pages or fifteen pages, and the onboarding's yeah. a lot e- easier. 
what yes. are you guys doing with Galactic Ruler? Because it sounds like that's kind of your goal to make sure that you're not overwhelming a brand new player when they open up your game. Mm, and it's an interesting topic because I feel like it's this whole question of how do you effectively engage a player? I feel like we've struggled with it at times over the 20 years that we've worked on these that a fair criticism we've gotten at times is feedback has not always been uh, at the level players needed or wanted and tutorials uh, we've changed our approach to building a tutorial a number of times, never been fully satisfied with it. Um, Looking at the development of galactic ruler, I'd say right now, the focus for improving on some of this is on creating a tutorial, an onboarding. Of the first Warcraft game, build three farms in a barracks that, uh, and uh, we use board games as well, that as a studio, every now and then we'll stay late. Well, now that we're all in isolation, but in normal times we would, maybe once a month stick around at the office late and play a board game because exactly as you're saying is there's been this evolution of board games are forcing players to do math in their head to keep track of complex systems remember all the rules but people still play it so what can we learn from those sort of systems to better onboard our players and get them to play a little bit deeper all the time yeah our hope is a combination of effective tutorial systems that blend into the game experience uh, combined with it is to get that feedback. That's probably our biggest focus right now for how to address some of that. Okay, yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. So one of the other things I'm very curious about, so the games you guys have been working on have been set in the world we know, in mostly events we know, or with people we know, and those kind of capacities. So you could kind of be like, yeah. I am playing as this person, or at least I understand this time, and I'm now a ruler in that time. Right. I would argue that's a very specific set of the market, which, which likes to be like, can, if I went through this event, can I do better? Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, because obviously you guys let the players now create a faction in space, but the inherent nature obviously is this doesn't exist in the real world. Right. So how, so like from grounding a, how do you feel like you guys have tried to ground a player to like really relate to this in that same capacity? Well, and it's interesting that uh, you describe the, the fictional alien factions as being so much different to playing a a historical leader. Uh, And I think a lot of players assume that, but I'm not sure that that's as different as, as you believe it to be in part because of the approach that we've taken with our games, which is that we try and create all the Supreme Ruler games, try and create a snapshot in time to say, this is where you're standing. And there is some effort to control what happens as time rolls forward. But we were always cautious about how much pressure we put to keep an accurate timeline. And our our goal has always been to create butterfly effect situations and i have to chuckle at some of the feedback it'll create from players that i had uh, just not too long ago i had a player who was playing the world war one era sent me a tech support message saying hey i'm playing as russia i'm 1918 and the russian revolution didn't happen and i'm like okay you're playing as russia how's it going 
are you managing your country well? Are you winning your fights and stuff? And they're going, yeah, it's going really well. I'm doing da 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 da. I'm like, okay, then why would a revolution happen? You're doing it well. Like the Russian revolution happened because things were falling apart and the Russia, th there were numerous factors there. But as soon as a player has done one month in game as a given country, they have irre irrevocably changed the history they're now playing through. Galactic Ruler tries to take the same sort of thing, is that we always had, uh, well, I shouldn't say always, we've developed for 20 years. Let's say for more than a decade, we've had a system of events where we can use triggers and effects. So as this thing, as this domino falls, it goes towards the next sets of dominoes. Um, and I think that's really what the players engage with, is that they're looking for an action that they do now having meaning a little further down the road as they play the game. And in fact, if an hour after something happens, you can make something happen in the game that ties back, that really can enhance the experience for the player. Now, I also think that what I just described there of going back an hour is particularly difficult for the type of games we create because we really are trying to do this butterfly effect sandbox where the players can just go. Um, and it's also the hope of seeing the engine surprise the player in the reactions it takes to the player's actions. That that's what I would consider. If I will consider the game to be really successful, if I can play as one faction, encounter a different faction, start doing stuff and, and look at them and go, oh, I wasn't expecting them to do that. That the, sorry, go ahead. I think what you're saying makes sense. So the reason I would, I would argue, because I think, I don't know if I am that player who as much as obsessed with the history point in that capacity, but I just understand the reasoning because as much as the butterfly effect exists, it's still the foundational, they might have a broad understanding of if I'm Russia, even if the Russian Revolution does not happen, I still feel like I'm Russia. And I understand in some capacity in historical terms what that feels like. And 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 to me, what's obviously when you're an alien faction, you don't have that like that inherent cultural context behind it. True. And I guess what I can, as we're talking about this, I'm realizing that an approach we have taken in some of this is um, efforts to flesh out the backstory for these factions. And that's, um, we see that in all sorts of games is there's constantly new lore being created, that a new game comes out, it has its own universe, it has its own backstory and those sorts of things. And uh, I'm a, a fan of science fiction and fantasy novels that if you can present the overview quickly, seamlessly, and get it going, players are pretty willing to accept a new universe most times that they start into something. If we think, <laughs> thinking all the way back to those people who bought Mass Effect, the first one in its first opening weeks, and were jumping into this new universe, not knowing how popular it was going to become in the long run, uh, I believe its success is because it was engaging, people got into it, and it just grew on its own. That that totally makes sense, and I'm just and I'm very curious. Cause obviously, like this genre has like StarCraft in it, and that would be a fine example of that. I'm just very curious because obviously, you guys have built an audience around a certain thing, and I think that's where I'm. That's to me, I bet you the difference. Even like in the short term, I'm curious what it will be like when it fully comes out of that, because they expect a, they, the audience you built expects a certain type of thing. I would compare it to when Civilization tried to do Civ Beyond Earth, and there was very much an in the audience, they expected Civ to mean a thing, and it didn't mean right. that thing in that game. And it's, and in truth, some of the things you're asking me right now, these are the things that keep me up at night. <laughs> these are, we, we design the games with 
hope that the community will be as enthralled by what we create as we are and take feedback, do testing. But at the end of the day, you never really know what the reception of something going to be. So I don't know. Uh, I, and again, I, I understand it's not out yet, so I'm very, I, I bet you a lot of those questions we will see answered at some point. It's just a very interesting, yes. I'd say, mind experiment of, like, especially you guys are making this pivot you've wanted to make, but it's definitely a pivot for the thing you are making. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is something entirely new for us. Um, and uh, maybe the comment that I made earlier about the fact that we've also announced a new Supreme Ruler at, uh, at some point is probably a combination of the community's pressure and insistence that they want more Supreme Ruler content and our own knowledge of we've just, we have developed so much uh, expertise and talent in developing that sort of thing. It's hard to pull yourself out of a niche. Once something's working, why would you not continue evolving it and doing more of it? And, and we look forward to that sort of thing. But and we still see, we've, we've obviously made sure to check out the competitors in the space of seeing what was done in Galsiv 3 and Stellaris, Sins of the Solar Empire, and, and sort of looking for where we see strengths in their designs, where we see gaps and and really looking for what can we deliver that nobody else on the market is providing and definitely the the transition that we're offering between a planet level to a system level to a galaxy to then go to another system and down to another planet and and managing all that our the the responsibility the community puts on our shoulders is to make it all cohesive make it something that somebody can follow through and not get lost as they bounce between the planets and we still have confidence we can do this. Well, Chris, I wish you the best of luck in your confidence to do that and, and succeeding in it. Because I think you guys have for sure made a, a great niche in the market. You guys have made games that I think will have been well-received throughout the years at this point. And I'm very hopeful and curious you guys can do the same thing with this game. Uh, I have one more question I've got to ask. And I, have, and I know you're going to walk around it. When is this <laughs> game coming out? <laughs> I don't just walk around that. I'll dance. Uh, as everyone is certainly aware, this couldn't be a worse time to be asking companies to set themselves a deadline. What I can offer is like everybody, we're reassessing on a, like every two weeks, we reevaluate stuff, but we had previously indicated, um, something available Q1 of this year. Uh, it's still possible. It is um, it is something that we are still working towards, but uh, I am certain that this year people will be playing some Galactic Ruler stuff. Uh, what format it'll be, what it'll be, when it'll be, yeah, I just I can't say any more than that yet. There's too much uncertainty right now. Perfect. So, so we're going to hold you to it. As of right now, you are saying Galactic Ruler will come out this year, and I'm going to hold you saying Q1's a little harder since it's already mid-April, just because I don't yeah. know when you define Q1 ending. I think Q1's probably over, but that's just me. <laughs> or, oh, then I'm probably saying it wrong. We probably had it listed as Q2. But yeah. I should know these things before I start a call and start, ooh, I'm just going to throw out dates. And yeah. Yeah, let's go with Q2. That's much more realistic. Q2. Q2, okay. So Q2, yeah. maybe, realistically, at least some point this year, people will be playing a thing called Galactic Ruler by you guys. 
Yes. Perfect. And and if they want to find the game, it's Galactic Ruler on Steam, and then you guys' website yeah, is Yeah, they can just... find us on Steam, and there's the battlegoat.com website. And uh, one of the things that has been a hallmark of our studio since about 2002 is bgforums.com, the development forums where you can chat with the rest of the community and us as developers. We participate fairly extensively in the forum chatting with our community every now and then i get users who are like wait you're a developer you're talking to me that we get so much good stuff out of talking directly with our community that's definitely the place i'd suggest people to start so you guys made a forum so you made discord before discord was cool is what what you're saying (laughs) (laughs) oh it it is a very uh old style phpbb forum but we just i and i am uh the the record holder for the total number of posts. I think I have over twenty thousand unique posts on that forum. I'm something like eight percent of the total forum posts. It's a frightening number. That is terrifying, and I'm terrified <laughs> how late at night you have to stay up answering all those posts. Oh yes. Perfect. Well, Chris, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today, and I'm it's excited to see what you guys do with this game. Thanks, and good luck with your podcasts. They're great. Keep them up. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another one of what I'm calling the Quarantine Edition interview episodes of the SWW Show. I'm Mike. Today with me, not AJ, but someone I've relatively known for a couple years now. Could you please tell me your name and the game that we're here to talk about? Hi there. My name's Will Rossi, and I'm a developer on Kakate Koyo. As we were talking about before, yes, the... We will link to the game name because I guarantee you no one or very few from pronunciation are going to go to find that game from its pronunciation alone. <laughs> I, I, I would be surprised, you know, that that seems to be one of our struggles in the development. So I don't know if I ever asked you this. I immediately got asked, why, wh- wh- where did the name come from? So it, um, that's actually a great question. When we first started the game, we knew we wanted it to be... Uh, well, we we quickly de- uh, developed it to want to be cats fight, and we we were all fans of. I, I know this is this is a bit stereotypical. We were all fans of anime. Um, two of the people in our dev group w- were studying Japanese at the time, and I believe still are. And so we decided that um, a fun Japanese theme would be perfect for the game. Uh, and along with that, there's also the phrase in Japanese, Kakate Koyo, which loosely translates, you know, come at me or, you know, like, let's fight or something like that. And um, so we figured it'd be a good fit. You know, the um, it's a somewhat common phrase along with um, a really fun theme and a cute aesthetic. And it just kind of worked. Oh, sorry, though. <laughs> Yeah, no, that is that is that is good because yeah, immediately. So to so to clarify for everyone, this started as your senior capstone game. You guys continue working on it. I remember, I remember very quickly. It was always cats. It was always this theme. But like, I don't, I don't feel, I feel like I remember the name taking a while for it to have a name. It did, yeah. So we originally started the game with the uh, the project title. I believe it was uh, cats and fish, cats and fish fight stuff or something like that. Like very random just like okay these are the words this is word association of what our game is essentially um but we it was always a working title and we knew we wanted to turn it uh, into a much better name 
fair, my my first game was called Project VR, so it's like about the same level of creativity there. It's yeah, like... yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I think well, they they stress very early going into the project, as you remember, like don't worry about the name, you know. So it's it, it, I, I looking at a lot of people who do their own project who maybe didn't go through a game development program or something like that. One of the early mistakes that that I see somewhat commonly is fixating on the name really early and like finding the perfect name. Uh, whereas you should really be doing the opposite, which is don't give a crap about the name or the image, just work on the actual thing. Which, which, so I agree with you on the sense of the name doesn't matter. I think the name matters at the end of the day. What I actually have a bigger oh, issue with. Yeah, no, it's, it's a massive decision you're going to make in the, in the development process. But early on when you're just starting it and you're like, doing brainstorming or trying to get a prototype out the door. Yeah, the name doesn't matter. I I was going to say what always interests me on um Oh, yeah, noise. So I was going to say what 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 I have th- always like is a bigger mistake that people make is I always, I have a, always have an issue when someone names their studio after the first game when it's something that's very dependent on their game. Mm. Cuz at that point you're kind of like stuck at it. Yeah, for sure. Well, you guys, you guys are, I don't know if I said it, you guys are backslash games, which, again, I think everyone said at the time, too. Somehow a great name that was never taken, which is impressive. Yeah, no, we were we were really surprised. We Someone came up with it. I can't remember who on the team came up with it, but someone pitched it, and we were all like, oh, that's a really good name. And we looked it up, and uh, n- nothing. And we were honestly shocked. Yeah, so, so yeah, so, it, so... I don't know if we fully said the game, so we're going to talk about us a second. So, so your game, I like to describe, and you'll correct me, um, as uh, Cat Smash Brother Cats. Yeah, actually, that's that's a great way to describe it. It's it's a 2D platform fighter with pixel art. So you can think, we, we usually describe it as a mixture of Duck Game and uh, Killer Queen, simply because it's, it's quick moving and... Uh, a lot of action, but also multiple win objectives. But it is oftenly conflated to Smash because it is that 2D fighter with a lot of movement and like big ring outs and stuff like that. Um, so when we're explaining it to people, yeah, Smash is definitely something we turn to. Uh, and Smash with cats that fight each other with fish is usually a pretty flashy thing to tell us. Yeah, so I think I think immediately that was one of the things I like with your game is it's it's very much like Killer Queen and the here is five objectives or whatever number you had. Do you mind going over like one or two of them to begin with? But like here's kind of like so give people a better idea of what the differences are. Absolutely, yeah. So the one that we really started with uh, was the bomb that's in the middle. We have uh, on most maps, not all maps, but. Uh, most of them have a bomb in the middle that you need to use a fish to hit towards one of the shrines on either end of the map. And that's a very close, uh, I, I would say, I, I, I'm tempted to say copy, but we didn't copy it. There's a lot of difference between the snail in Killer Queen. And I do want to preface everything I'm about to say. Uh, we've talked with the Killer Queen devs. We are, we, we've hung with them, and they're really chill. They love our game. Um, nothing that we're doing is trying to steal or do anything like that. Uh, uh, talking with them, it's just been a massive collaboration. Not collaboration, but it's, it's been really amazing to be able to work off of their ideas without feeling the pressure of having to prove that we're not copying something. 
I, why do I feel like been re- the first time you saw them, you, you probably explained the game and they go, oh, you did one of those too? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, essentially, I went over to their booth and I started talking to one of the devs about it. And I was like, oh, yeah, our game's here, too, at blah, blah, blah. We, we, you know, looked at your mechanics while we were uh, during our development. And he was like, oh, that's, that's, you know, one, I'm so sorry. But also, here's all these problems we ran into. Make sure you don't run into those. off track but the 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 mechanic we were copying from killer queen was the snail that's in the middle the idea is that it's this very slow monotonous task that um you really forget about in killer queen one person hops on the snail and it's moving so slowly it makes no noise it barely moves so it's very easy to just kind of forget about it uh we wanted to change it a little bit in our game um the difference is you have to attack it in ours. You can't do it uh, bare, barehanded either. You have to have a, we- a weapon, one of the fish. Uh, and also it's right in the middle of the map. It's right in the center of all the action and can get hit by accident and can get pushed the wrong way by the wrong team. Uh, it's, very, it's a very much central part of the game in ours or on the maps that it's in. Which, to clarify uh, and, for everyone, an early build, if I remember correctly, of the game, there was something weird with the coloring where everyone kept killing themselves, I feel like, with that, too. Yes. Yeah. So we realized very early that our color coding was not fantastic. We we started with these little tiny neckerchiefs that were on the cats, uh, and the shrines were different colors, and so were the scores. And honestly, we really haven't changed much. We just changed how we telegraphed it. Um, we, on some of the maps, like one side is like fully blue with all the scenery in the background. The trees have a blue night tinge to them. And then the other side, it's like more of an orange. We also moved away. I believe originally we were thinking of doing red and blue side, but, uh, we ended up going with, uh, the colors that we did because it's just a little softer on the eyes, works with our color palette and is a lot easier to I don't know how to explain it. Uh, when your eyes are looking at the screen, they just pick them up easier. So it feels more, the new color scheme you guys have had recently feels, I'd say, more Japanese and figuring that cultural look a lot better, too. Uh, yeah, yeah. We realized that we needed to use some more. Um, I, we haven't had a huge palette shift in the game. It's mainly just been more detailing. Uh, our artist has gone in and done a fantastic job reworking a lot of the background scenery and making it just just a little more alive. Um, usually what I tell anyone to bring life to their game is just look at any aspect of your game and make it more, make it better. You know, if, if your scenery is pretty good, uh, do more with it. You know, you have a brick wall, go put cracks in those walls, you know. It's um the the small details you can add to the background and the scenery really w- can bring the game that extra bit of life. So that that's what I would call the passive, like harder to win but immediate win win condition. What is so? I know of one more. I believe that's the only one I can think of. So the there's three main ones that we're working off right now. Uh, we're Thinking about uh, toying with some others in the future, but currently you have the scoreboard and the shrines. You can win by blowing up either of the shrines, your opponent's shrine, um, 
or you can win by scoring points, which you either do by ringing people out or scoring fish in your basket, which you can do by. So for I'll, I'll explain to your viewers a little bit. The fish are the main weapon in the game. What you do is you spawn, you run to the pond, you fish out a koi fish, which is your basic weapon. You can, uh, when you don't have a fish, you can swipe and throw. You can swipe, which steals a fish, or you can throw, which throws your opponent, but but deals no damage. You can only deal damage once you have a koi fish, which works as your basic attack. If you get that koi fish to the shrine, then it upgrades it into one of uh, a couple different powerful fish we have. Um, and scoring any of those fish in your basket gives you points. Ringing opponents out gives you a point. And if you get to seven points, well, the, the points will uh, vary depending on uh, what you set them, or we'll be adding in a way to set the point value. Um, but yeah, no, you, you can win by points. You can win by blowing up the shrine, but different ways to get points. That That's, that's yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that, that, which, which fundamentally, which I always appreciate, is the game. The, I think mechanics, I think, have gotten a little bit clearer, obviously, and better, and a little more explained better. But I think fundamentally, your game has been here in the same capacity now for roughly a year. It feels like, which, which I think, and I comment you guys from the original design to like, oh, good, you guys had this base thing that worked. I'm mm-hmm. curious because obviously, I only know the game in its truest form through the NMA. What other is there any other, like, major things that, like, you're like, okay, no, no, we, we didn't realize this was busted at the time, but, like, fundamentally had to shift the nature of this game? Um, no. Uh, interestingly enough, I, I don't think we did. There was a lot of struggle we had with uh, how our maps were built and the flow of them and the flow of the gameplay, and we had to do a lot of tweaking with values and ma- different map setups and stuff like that. But after we did that tweaking, we we found a really solid place. And I think I'll give you uh, an honest answer for that is I think we it's because we started with really no plan. Um it, it because I I see like I feel like it's harder to develop a game when you dig yourself into the hole of this is like the game I want to make, you know? Uh, we went into it because it was a class assignment. Our te- you know, you remember our teacher, David, said, uh, you know, go get into these groups, go make a game. And so from the very start, we were like, uh, let's make a 2D fighting game. Um, sure, cats. Yeah. Which, look, the two rules I remember correctly was nothing uber complicated like VR and yep. no fighting games. I think were the two rules he said. Yeah. And so just to we- clarify. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we basically, we, we went, okay, sure, uh, no. And we did exactly what he told us not to, and it worked anyway. I, I, I think so. The, I think the only way we got away with it, though, is because we were working on that second game, uh, Elevator, but we obviously put that away to work on Kakate. One of the other things I, I, I find very interesting, so you guys then were lucky enough then to go to E3, during the summer and show the game off there. So I'm curious when you change that audience base and that you went in front of like substantially and I'd say bigger people, probably critical and different lens type people. Like what was that Mm -hmm. like? And the reaction to the game? Um, overwhelmingly. I, I've heard, I've 
received a fantastic response from the indie game community and the honestly the AAA community when I've gone to these events and we because we've shown off the game now at E3 GDC and a couple local shows and everyone we run into is super supportive when they see the game. Um, there was a, a some fantastic critiques we got. Uh, like I said, the Killer Queen people came over uh, and we talked with one of their devs and he gave us some insight, uh, which was fantastic to have that kind of um, experience. Just be able to say, oh, just so you know, don't do that because we we like really messed up by doing that and it doesn't. Um, you know, you don't always have to listen to that because sometimes hearing them say that and then you go, oh, well, I can make that work. Sometimes you can make something really cool work, but for the most part, it was really nice to have that, uh, those, I guess like quick little mentor sessions with different people in the, uh, in the industry was really helpful, but no, it wasn't, it wasn't this like big pressure from, uh, big industry people coming over and like rimming out our game. So, so general side note, because I'm very curious. I don't know if I ever heard the answer to this. So I know your team went to E3, and then one of our professors went. Did anyone else from the go, or was it just you guys? So it was us four, and then I believe there was two other students that ended up going with the school, but not associated with us. I'm not quite sure. I knew there was a two other students from the school there, but we never interacted with them. Which, okay, um, that's what I was curious, because I totally was one of the students who had the option to go, and I was like, I'm starting a new job, like, halfway across the country. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I there there was two other students. I have, I think I, like, saw one of them and was like, oh, hey, at some point. But other than that, no. Yeah, it was just us four and our teacher. Interesting. Okay, so then, obviously, the other big jump, since I saw the game, and since E3, then obviously, you guys are actually a Steam game on Early Access. So the immediate the immediate question I have for you is how much f- it ha- it has to be like an obnoxious amount of work just to get through the Steam pipeline, right? Unfortunately, um, it's even weirdly enough even more work if you're going into early test. But we we decided we so we were on itch before, and we were pay what you want, and we got a quite amount of support on that actually we we ended up raising um not not an incredible amount of money but enough for us to realize like oh okay we we really should keep with this um and so we had that up for for up until the day i actually think, think it was up a day or two after we came um but then we ended up pulling it down or you it's I actually think the the build that we switched over to the seam is still up um and I, I we're leaving it up there i'm pretty sure just as a little this is where the game was you can still play it for free but if you want to check out what the game's actually like here it is on steam um but getting onto steam was a process yeah it uh it was just a lot of um it, filling in boxes it wasn't even like they had to to make sure our game was cool enough for the Steam marketplace. It was just a lot of like filling in your tax number and stuff like that. Which, yeah, my understanding is it's very much like a no. Here are a thousand boxes. Pay us two hundred bucks and let's get going. Yep. Yeah. The entrance fee was uh, I think it was a hundred. I think yeah, it's a hundred. Um, and that was a pain in the. But 
crazily enough, I actually want to tell this story because it's a, it, that was the one thing that came out of E3 that was just freaking mind blowing. Um, somehow, uh, oh, her name. There's, uh, there's a, uh, I probably, she, she, I don't know if she would want to be named. So I, I'm just going to not say her name just in case. Uh, but a person who is somewhat famous on the internet came over to I totally know who this is for the record. I already know this exact story, but go on. I enjoy the story. <laughs> well, she, she was pretty vocal about supporting us on Twitter, but j- just in case, um, someone came over and, who was very famous on, on uh, YouTube and Twitch, uh, and she loved our game so so much and she wanted to play it on steam on stream and uh really enjoyed it and so we were talking about our development process and where we wanted to go and how we wanted to put it on steam and we mentioned that it was a hundred dollar entrance fee to get on there and we hadn't even raised a hundred dollars from game sales at that point and so she with without even missing a beat was just like oh i'll cover it like immediately was just like no I i would love to pay that so you guys can get on steam and we were so uh so awestruck and grateful by that for that and it was it was really like a dream we went to e3 and this celebrity came up to us and was like oh yeah no i'll pay for your game to get. um it was amazing yeah uh, that was that was the one part of the process that was just mind-blowing so that really just lucked out in an immense way of like yeah no no it was, it was good <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the, the believe me, without that, it would have been an amazing experience in and of itself. But I mean, like that, that just doubled, tripled the experience. I'm curious. You guys are you guys are on Steam immediately on early access. Yes. How has that experience been post put in the game on early access? Has a ton more eyeballs been on the game? Have you gotten a way of a scattershot of feedback? It's really hard to parse. What has it been like? So it's actually, it's um. We've gotten a decent amount of downloads, but the issue is getting content out. We are at a point right now where we're very close to wanting to send out a press release and um, like have all these different reviewers look at our game. And like we did one key mailing to about a hundred streamers, and only about five of them ended up biting, which is a you know a decent a decent ratio if you if you know the statistics that streamers actually respond to your shit. And um, we realized after that we shouldn't do our full push until the game was at a place that we really were... Right now it's just not at the point where we would want to push it out to that extent, we are very close. We were within like a couple of weeks of getting it to that point, but we're just waiting for it to get to that quality where it's uh, playable. It's playable multiple times and it's easy to get into. Um, and we, it, it's just a little clunky at the moment. I, I'm very, I'm like making uh, ant hills into mounts here, but we're just waiting for the the right moment to do that big push. I'm curious. Obviously, one of the things you have talked about is you're adding some sort of campaign or single player to the game. What other yes. is is there any other big push like a tutorial working on, or just is it just balance changes at this point? So the single 
levels, like kind of all wrapped into one. Um, it originally started as a training mode where you could just go and it would teach you about scoring fish and that was about it. Um, but now it's turning into a very like, there's platforming and it teaches you how to dodge because you have to like jump around fish turrets and it's, it's just a lot more, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my thought, but it's, um, the, the single player is just getting expanded on. Like I said, we, we, we picked one, the next thing in the project that required work and we just added to it. Josh is doing a, a one of our uh, designers, Josh is doing a fantastic job with that. I don't know the specifics of what's happening because he's kind of working on that, showing us screenshots, giving us updates. But uh, as soon as that I can have like a playable version, it's uh, it's looking like it's going to be pretty great. Yeah, you guys have lucked out, I guess, during all this because you always were a scattered team. So like it really, I assume your workflow just put everyone's chaos, at least relatively, you already were, we're all set up for this. Unfortunately, I mean, like from from the standpoint of um, like trying to get the team together and do stand ups and be that level of coordinated, it's pretty hard just because we're all living our own lives, doing second jobs. I mean, this is, you know, the reality for a lot of indie devs. And um, so we end up finding this flow of leaving a message in discord with like a request or a, this is what I'm doing. What do you guys think? And then leaving it for a day and then coming back and seeing the responses. Um, and you know, I, we, we have like full blown conversation stuff, but that is a lot of how our work is done. Just like, all right, this is what I'm doing. Uh, whenever you guys see this, like, let me, let me get the stuff that I need. No, no, a hundred percent is the like, reality for a shocking amount of people that that of the game in front may look very much like professional they must be doing well and then in the back end you're like no no this is us we're like doing this 10 hours a week like yeah yeah it's like my oh, fifth I'm job dishwasher and i work till 2 a.m to make this so okay so as we get to the tail end of this is there anything else upcoming or other things that you want people to know about the game that you feel like we missed so uh just that we're we're pushing some big updates in the next month or two. Uh, we're trying to get the single player out, and we're also trying to work on the uh, the multiplayer a lot. So you guys are, are single player, local multiplayer, and then the Steam multiplayer thingy, right? Steam released their Steam link play the the thing that allows you to play local multiplayer uh with friends online on and that works with our game fantastically and the way we've gotten around lobbies is we have a discord so that that was going to be the next thing that i was going to mention is we have the kakate koyo discord uh where we keep people updated we listen to feedback we talk with players and we also have a uh, match make so you can hop in there see ask anyone if they want to fight and then hop in a game so that that's how we're getting around the because you know as a as a team of four fresh out of college we, we can't rent servers <laughs> what 
<laughs> yeah, no. Oh, you guys can't have like stable servers for a for a fighting game that can like run that level of frame per. Oh, how dare you! <laughs> Perfect. So, where is the Discord link? Then is it on the Steam page? Uh, we have the Discord link on our Twitter, and uh, you can also get it through the game. So, if you go to the credits in the game, there's a link there that you can snap into our Discord through. Perfect. Okay, so let's let's make sure we have all of the places they can find the game correctly. It is yeah, so at... you can find us uh, on Twitter at Play Kakate Koyo, uh, and then you can find us on Steam where Kakate Koyo. Yeah, uh, and then I'm sure the spelling will be in the name description of this. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, don't worry, don't worry. I'm 100 yeah. percent linking to this stuff because there you go. I don't think I I have to look up when I spell it, and I've seen it plenty of times. So I guarantee everyone else has to look up to spell this thing. <sighs> well, well. thanks for taking time out of your day to talk about Absolutely uh, Best of luck on you guys continuing development And getting this thing into what I guess Team defines as a full product Whatever that means these days Yeah, yeah And, and just a, a one quick note We're starting the game at $5 um, Right now we, we think it's a $5 game You know, that's, that's the level of content we have in it But we're because it's early access We have the ability to raise the price as we go. So as we as we add more content, we're going to be raising the price. So if you want to have a copy of the game for $5 and see the content that comes, pick it up early. The plan t- pending to changes right now is just all updates are included with the game unless something giant changes. Absolutely. We uh, are not huge fans of DLC, which is exactly why we're doing our price raising method. Um we want to charge people for the content we have in the game and reward them for supporting us early. So this is the best way we can think of doing that. And then later on, if we fully release the game and we want to keep making stuff, maybe we'll put out a DLC. But for right now, we're developing around not. Perfect. Well, well, thanks again, Will, and best of luck to you. Thank you so much. Hello, everyone, and welcome to what I'm calling another one of these interview quarantine specials. We're all locked in our houses. I don't know. <laughs> I'm Mike, and today with me, I have a special guest. Could you please tell me your name and the game we're here to talk about? Hi, um, I'm Andrea Roberts. Uh, I'm the game designer and artist working on Round Guard. Yeah, so can you mind telling everyone what is Round Guard? Yeah. Uh, so Roundguard is, um, we like to call it a bouncy dungeon crawler with pinball physics. Um, if you are familiar with the game Peggle, it's basically Peggle mashed up with a, a roguelike. So instead of a ball bouncing around on a bunch of pegs, you're actually taking your hero and shooting them into a dungeon full of monsters and gold pots and potions and bouncing around to try to defeat the monsters, survive through a big procedural dungeon, collect lots of loot, all that good stuff. Because obviously, when you, when I look at it, I think the pick comparison is there, at least from a mechanics point of view. <laughs> um, yeah. So, like, did you guys just play Peggle and go, I could do it better? Like, where did that idea come <laughs> from? Yeah, well, um, so, yeah, there obviously is a lot of inspiration from Peggle, and uh, I love Peggle. Um, Bob and I played a ton of it when it first came out. Um, but uh, like originally when we were brainstorming on the idea, um, the three of us, we were trying to think of some fun games to work on. And we really, we knew that we wanted to play with physics again. We had done a little 
a hobby project in the past um, with physics. And it was one of the most fun things that we'd ever worked on, like fun for us to develop and fun to play. And I think part of that was like physics is really interesting in how like it's very um, kind of like it's also can it can be very complex and like in a, a very analog way and so you can get a lot of interesting uh, results out of physics and so so we were brainstorming around physics ideas and we had like a, a bunch of one pager ideas um and we were you know i don't know we had a stack of them and we were kind of getting a little stuck and sitting there and often when i'm stuck from a design side i like to just kind of mash things together like different genres or mechanics or I don't know whatever weird thing I see on my bookshelf or whatever and so for whatever reason uh I I just I remember saying Peggle RPG and we just instantly were like oh my god I know exactly what that game is and we quickly wrote out the sheet and like basically that one pager that we put together then is what Rangard became. For the record I appreciate and and I am that type of person. So I'm, I'm saying this in a not condescending way. It's um, it takes a special type of crazy person to enjoy making <laughs> physics. <laughs> <laughs> That's it's very true. <laughs> Everyone else, like, and any background stuff, looks at it for two minutes and goes, "No, it doesn't work half of the time." And you're like, "That's the point. We make it work." <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. Well, we're lucky, you know. Like I said, I'm on the design and art end of things. Kurt, um, who is our engineer expert, is uh, really great at all of that stuff. And so he helped work through all of the craziness that, that physics throws at you. <laughs> well, so, so my background is design and programming. So that, mm -hmm. that actually works really well. So I'm curious from a design point of view, because I think what Peggle, I think falls in a trap that I think a lot of, especially mobile games of that era come from is they get really hard really quickly. Where mm -hmm. where did you find that like balancing point of like well we want the player to continually have a challenge but you also don't want them to hit like a Dark Souls level of oh no <laughs> yeah yeah it um so yeah that was a really big challenge I think for for me from the design perspective um, balancing difficulty across the game for one thing uh, we wanted the game to be appealing and accessible to a pretty wide scope of folks. So like we we wanted to do a roguelike. We knew that there were gonna be a bunch of hardcore players and streamers who wanted a real challenge out of that. And we thought we could deliver that. But like, we also wanted it to be something that people who really liked Peggle when we're looking for something just a bit more chill to play um, would also be able to find fun in. So, so for one thing, it was like, you know, balancing across this wide spectrum of players, um, but also like a, a roguelike, is hard to balance because uh, part of the fun of it all is that that it is procedurally generated, which means there's all these systems in the game that, you know, like I'm not hand picking every single level and what's going to come after each level and, you know, make sure that you have this skill at this time or any of that. We really let the systems decide. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of rules tuning and all of that, but um, every run is different. Every dungeon is generated to feel different. Um, uh, every loot pool is going to give you different things. And so, like, it's not just balancing one version of the game, it's balancing every possible version of the game. Um, so, 
so yeah, so it was a big challenge and it was new for me. Uh, it was the first time I've ever worked on um, procedural design like this. Uh, and I think, I think it came at it from a, a handful of different way, ways. Um, one thing that I really tried to do was give players uh, some choice in how difficult they wanted the game to be. Because I know that I can't balance it perfectly for every player. Um, and so there are some things like um, there, we've got these, this relic system that uh, early on, like right when you start, you have a relic that's unlocked called the Mercy Relic, which you can use to basically make the game a little bit easier for you. Um, but as you play through and you beat the game, you'll unlock new relics that will introduce additional rules you can keep layering on um, that will make the game significantly harder um, and weirder. <laughs> and so from that perspective, you can kind of tune where you want the difficulty. Um, and there were a lot of parts where, like, I think a lot of roguelikes um, are tuned to be very punishing. Um, that, you know, a lot of the uh, appeal of them is like how how dark souls, you know, how hard it is. Um, and we wanted to keep that roguelike feeling of there are new things to discover, like new things you, had to, you have to learn the enemy behavior, you have to try, you're gonna die, you're gonna try again, but you're gonna learn again um, and keep getting better. I, like I wanted that arc to your play, but I didn't want it to ever feel like we were really punishing you out of the blue. So there are a lot of enemies that are tuned in certain ways. Like, you know, I had to keep coming back and retuning and retuning them to make sure that it was very difficult for them to just one shot you without warning. Um, we added like some different features, like um, there's this like drama cam moment when you're coming in for like the final hit on a monster on a board um, where we slow down time, we slow down the camera, we zoom in a bit. And that adds a bunch of drama and fun, like that was in the original Peggle. But we also do the same thing when you're right about to die. Um, and so that can like give you that extra moment um, to react and uh, try to use one of your skills to save yourself. Um, so yeah, I don't know. There's lots of little things along the way where like I, I, I tried uh, to really um, think about a wide range of players and think about that difficulty experience. I think that part of it though, is that because it is a roguelike and because it will rebuild itself differently every time, like sometimes you will get a kind of a, a hard roll. And, uh, you know, if the game punishes you a little bit that time, like hopefully you learn something and you'll come back to it again and you'll give it another shot. And maybe next time it'll combine itself in a new way that, uh, you know, it challenges you in a different way, maybe makes it a little easier in another way. I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree. That is that is always a. It's a. It's a real risk of when you're making roguelikes. And but yeah, I think I I think we're kind of on the same page though on the agreement of there's still a base level to the roguelike, and then it's kind of like you kind of like you make a bandwidth. It's kind of like when you balance it. It's like why well, have this low and it could be or this high and it's a matter of how far do I let this bandwidth actually go? Yeah, yeah. So that that is very interesting. So was there any roguelikes? Because I. I Especially in a game like this, I feel like you had to lean on those even a lot more than like the Peggle comparison. That like mm -hmm. you've looked at and went, I want to do this, or is there a roguelike by a chance you're like, I don't want to do this because that's not what we're making? Mm 
Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. I, uh, so when we first started making the game, um, I had, I'd been getting into a lot of roguelikes, um, that, uh, you know, kind of like combined roguelike mechanics with new genres. So, um, like I think at the time we've been playing a bunch of FTL and Darkest Dungeon and um, Enter the Gungeon, some games like that. Um, and like I, I had gotten really just excited about, uh, I don't know, I, I love roguelikes. I love, I think there's a real beauty to them and how they, um, you know, how, how like watching all the systems recombine, I think it like really pushes players to learn the game design itself. Like we all almost become game designers playing other people's roguelikes because you can't just memorize a level and, and beat it. Like you have to think about the systems and start to kind of like strategize around what is likely to happen um, and, and like improvise when, you know, things change on you. Uh, so I loved that about them. Um, and I think, so when we first started making Round Guard, it was, um, like I said, like those games were in our minds, but we started, like I, I said, like I, I first said Peggle RPG and we started with that more of a structure of like a game more like Puzzle Quest or something like that, where it was like a set of challenge boards across a campaign map or something um, more like that. And I really, I kept talking about making it a roguelike. Um, but we were, you know, we were a little scared because we'd never done that kind of procedural design work before. Um, I knew that it could really balloon. And um, and so we were a couple months into the project. We'd like just got together our first playable prototype for it. And we went to, um, uh, so we're based up in the Seattle area and there's this really great group here called the Seattle Indies um, that they do like a bunch of events for all the indies in the group to share information and get to show off their games and get feedback. And so we went to the show and tell that they had where anybody, like any developer in the area could come and bring whatever they had, a prototype or a finished game or whatever. Um, and so, like I said, like we had, we just like are a couple months into our first playable slice of the game. And uh, at the same time, the Slay the Spire guys were there. And so this was like about six months before they released and on early access. So we hadn't seen the game or heard of it before. Um, and all three of us went around and played the game and came back <laughs> and talked to each other about it. And we were really excited. And we were totally in love with it. Um, and I think that like, as we were talking about it and hearing about each of our different experiences, it was just like, yeah, this is what's great about roguelikes. We were just really excited about it. And um, so, yeah, it was, it was kind of like the inspirational push for us to go, yeah, let's do it. This is, this is going to be good. Um, but yeah, I think like for me with roguelikes, there's, there's two big camps. Um, well, I don't know. There's probably more than that, but uh, yeah, someone's going to be like real to... offended. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like from like um, a meta progression perspective, uh, you know, there's like a very pure classic roguelike where there's permadeath and you lose everything, and um, 
And then there are other games that lean more on meta progression where you keep unlocking things and um, and like some of them push into like you, maybe you can't even beat the game on your first playthrough because you need to collect enough resources to, um, you know, to build up your character. And I think both of those things can be really fun and interesting and and we're not like all the way far on the farthest end of completely pure but I really like when you asked about like looking at different games and what we wanted to do and what we didn't want to do um I think for for me like I I really like the the purity of um of, of when you die you start over again again like we have a couple little things like there's a trinket you can unlock these relics or whatever there's some additional mechanics as you play that um get unlocked and added to the pool but for the most part like i really like starting over fresh because i think that it puts so much of the emphasis on like you as a player that you're the one who's growing and developing and like it's all on your skills to keep getting better and um, understanding the systems deeper. And I just think that's really cool. <laughs> See, that's very, so that was, yeah. That's very interesting. Cause, cause totally like when I, when I think of making roguelikes or play them, I totally lean on more the other side of that coin of like, mm-hmm. I go, Oh, I like, I think it's, I think it's the, I like the idea of a roguelike. And then I like the RPG hooks in me. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I totally, I totally get that. I mean, it was, it was a debate within just our third three person team quite a bit. And I'm the one I think on the furthest end of uh, like wanting that purity. Um, and I like and there are tons of great things about getting that kind of progression, that like having set goals in front of you and feeling that completion of doing them. I really I get that. Um, but yeah, I really I I I wanted to make sure that a lot of that um, that like triumph was was definitely yours, you know. Uh, that makes a lot makes a lot of sense. So the other thing, so you said you do design and art was like your other big pink mm-hmm. place. So so did, did you just watch? Car- I'm very curious because like to me, I immediately go, you just like Cartoon Network cartoons, which is like my immediate like art look for this game. Yeah, <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, I did. Have, I I watch a lot of Cartoon Network cartoons. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely like a lot of Adventure Time and Steven Universe and yeah lots of lots of great cartoons i totally have i, I would watch them anyway um but i also have a four-year-old daughter and so we spend a lot of time watching fun cartoons like i totally have your steam page up in front of me and i just watched there's like there's like the octopus like monster thing with like the <laughs> big eyes and i'm like oh no this is totally like like right now we're like five years ago cartoon Network, because i get a picture in my head of like that very very distinctive look and style uh-huh, uh-huh. well yeah yeah thanks <laughs> But no, that just that just intrigues me because again, it's it's. I think it's also, and I, I don't mean this is kitty in that way, but it's always fascinating when mm-hmm. I see a game that like has a very serious back end and systems behind it, but like its front facing look almost makes it feel like oh, this is more approachable. Yeah, I think that our game, um, yeah, like I I kind of think of it as. Um, as a good introduction to people who maybe aren't as comfortable or uh, or experienced with roguelike, um, like I think there's a lot of depth and challenge for people who are roguelike players to find there. But um, but I yeah like like I said part of the challenge was like we had, we'd always wanted it to be a game that a lot of different people could play. I I have such 
strong nostalgia for the feeling of sitting on a couch with my sister and playing like the NES. And I, so I really, I always knew, even though like we started the game first on PC with thinking about it being on Steam, I always knew I wanted it to be on console and I wanted it to be something that a younger audience could play. Um, and then, and then when we hooked up with Apple Arcade, it was like, it was such a great fit bringing it to phone too. And, and I knew that we'd reach, you know, a whole mother swath of the audience that, um, that yeah, like I, I, I'd hoped always from the beginning that it, it could, it would feel approachable and welcoming, even while it had this like, kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, like not dark, but like, <laughs> like a, you know, a challenging core to it. My, that's another thing I've noticed too when I, when I saw you guys' game. So you guys are a three-person team. Just to clarify for yeah. everyone, you're on like everything. That's <laughs> very true. So we are on uh, Apple Arcade, uh, Steam, Xbox, PlayStation 4, and the Switch. Oh, did your programmer just go bald during the yeah. process? Like that that just feels to me very excessive because if I if I correctly, it's they're within a couple of days of each other, two relatives begins yeah. like the game wasn't like a month here, two months here, two months here. Yeah, yeah. It was crazy. Um Yeah, so uh so we did so it is a Wonder Belly Games is a three person team. Um there's there's me, um, Bob Roberts, my husband, uh, who does some of the code and design as well, and then um, and then Kurt, who is our engineering champ. Um, but uh, and, and we developed all of the gameplay um, with Wonder Belly Games. When it came to that end, um, that last few months as we were getting ready to go to uh, to consoles and to Apple Arcade, we did work with a team. Um, they're called the Quantum Astrophysicist Guild. And they're here in Seattle too. They're um, like an indie publisher um, that works with small indie teams to help bring them to these other platforms. And um, so, yeah, like their Ty, who leads the team, is really experienced working on the consoles, and he helped guide us through that whole process and did a ton of work. Um, and it wouldn't have been possible without uh, without their support. I did catch it because that makes a lot of sense because otherwise, again, I literally could not imagine like just that many people being like, yeah, we're just going to put it on like five things at the same time. Nothing goes wrong, right? And I just picture someone in the corner like who's like shaking, like looks like they've been on caffeine for like two weeks. Being like, it's, they work. They all work. <laughs> I, I'm so glad that you have that perspective because sometimes I, you know, it feels like... Um, People are like, well, you built it in Unity, right? Like you just push the button and it's ready on another platform. And it's like, little problems, weird performance issues and things, just like UI requirements, new, I don't know, all kinds of stuff that you have to do for each each like platform. or like one of them I know um from dealing stuff is like there's like stuff of like pending the platform certain rules are like when you show a button you have to actually use their <laughs> logo to show the button and you're like wait yeah. and you're like what do you mean and then they come back it's like sorry this <laughs> failed and you're like well, what failed what do you mean it failed the binder's a thousand pages I have to look through <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah, well, it was a lot it was a lot I mean pretty much the last 
I don't know, three or four months before shipping was really just platform work. Um, yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, I appreciate that everyone who doesn't understand thinks that, like, yeah, I could just, they all think you just take the same code that does a Steam achievement, and it just works on PS4. Like, that that's how <laughs> any of that works, that they all have the same uh, rules. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so, the other, so I'm curious. So now we're talking, it's been about a month-ish since the mm-hmm. game really has been out in, in the broad swath. Um, how, what, looking back, and now that it's obviously in a wider audience than you would probably at any mm-hmm. point had it testing... What, what, looking back and you're like, ooh, maybe next time I wouldn't do that or anything you're really proud of in the game? Oh, um, yeah. Great question. Um, hmm. So I know, like, as the game has been out there, well, for one thing, there, I mean, like you said, we were a very small team. Um, we did have a beta community that, uh, like, last summer we opened it up um on and and had a like a closed beta um with a bunch of folks on steam who were awesome um and really gave us a ton of feedback throughout the development process and so they they helped us um get a better sense of like where our difficulty was what were some of the things that people felt were missing or um you know um finding bugs and stuff and that and that was great um but getting out into the wild with a bunch of like even more new people, um, you know, there were there were a handful of bugs that popped up that that's been our our core focus over the last month is just finding every last one of those little things um, and bashing them out with a patch. So a whole batch of patches have gone out in the last couple of weeks on all of those platforms um, to tighten up those those last little bits that we found. Um, which like I wish that it had been bug free when it launched. I don't know how exactly we would have done it differently just because, like I said, we are such a small team and working on um, a roguelike presents some interesting testing challenges because like there's so many different ways it can combine that, you know, us playing it hundreds of times, we still didn't see certain weird combos that can happen that then like you know after being in the wild for a couple of weeks we got little screenshots like oh no well you can get stuck there i hadn't thought about that you know and, and um yeah, yeah i was but, i was like that challenge because you're like what do i do just test every seed one at a time and you're like i have 10 yeah. million seeds like what do i do yeah <laughs> yeah exactly um so yeah i i i mean from that perspective it's been it's been good um i don't know i think I think right now, one of the things that we have been thinking about a lot is ways to um, to extend the gameplay even more. You know, like I, I said, like we try to give the players lots of options, um, ways to kind of tune the difficulty for themselves. But I think that we're still hearing from edges of people of like, I wish the game was harder in this way. I wish the game was easier in this way. Um, and uh, and part of that is like speaking to such a broad audience that, you know, like it's hard to make it perfect for everyone. But we have been thinking a lot about different things we could do, like, for example, like adding a more um, hardcore challenge mode that like once you beat the game gives you some really set hardcore challenge goals for people who really want it to be harder and maybe um, aren't finding that for themselves in the Relic system. Um 
And then we're like talking about ways to make it easier, like maybe some experiences that are a little bit more bite sized so that people don't feel like they're losing so much of their progression or they can kind of dip their toes in the water a bit more or um, some other things like that. So yeah, I don't know. We're uh, we're thinking about a lot of that stuff still. Um, continual work in progress you'll say or it's, it's, it's in some capacity you made this weird game that like in theory in, in 10 years ago wouldn't have been a live game but you're like can, can, it's, it's it's also game development as whole you're like when does a game no one's quite sure when a game is done anymore <laughs> it's it is really hard like it's so hard um to to feel like you know you ever did enough because we always you know we still have so many ideas in the game design docs and everything of new heroes and monsters and game modes and all sorts of things that we could do with this game. Um, and at some point we just had to say, okay, like, I think this is solid enough. This is a good experience. And we want to get it out in people's hands. We want to like actually see, you know, make like what is working and maybe what we would be better. Um, but I think we like, we've always wanted to work on the game at least a bit more. Uh, but yeah, it is like yeah, it's so hard to know when to stop. <laughs> so as we get to the tail end of this, I'm gonna ask you the question that this is gonna be the hardest question for you, and I guarantee you it already. Mm. What is okay. of the of like you have this cast of characters in in the game, right? Of like all uh-huh. the different things. What is your favorite? Oh, mm. <laughs> um, hmm, I. I love each of the heroes in their own way. <laughs> um, but I think like, I think some of my favorite characters are really like the elite monsters. Like, I think they're some of the goofiest and I have, I have a lot of fun. Uh, like, I don't know, like I, I really, I, I love a bunch of funny, I was having a bunch of funny stuff that really has no place in an RPG into the game. And so like, I love the, like the goblin poet who we have, who's a beat poet who says a bunch of really terrible poetry and wears a a beret and sunglasses. And then like has a bunch of rose throwing fans. Um, And like our, or our skeleton, gelatinous cube trainer who who dresses up like a big jelly cube with like big googly eyes stuck on his head uh and trains a bunch of jellies i I don't know i I think i've had the most fun coming up with those kind of silly stupid scenarios (laughs) so which for the record from someone who grew up like in the midwest stuff too having a beat poet is the most seattle image i could humanly have in my head (laughs) so like it works really well (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah so yeah so andrea thanks for talking to me about about the fun adventure that has been round guard and your journey <laughs> through it can you tell us all maybe in where where they should look to go find the game whether the splash pages oh, yeah. or the storefronts totally um so yeah the like the best place to get it all rolled up is on our website so if you go to www.wonderbellygames.com then there you can find links to all of those store pages that I mentioned before. But also um, you can find links to like following us on, you know, all all our social stuff like Twitter. Um, We have a discord community. Like I talked about that beta that we ran. Um, We did 
all of that through Discord. And so we still have that Discord community rolling and you can come in there and give us feedback. Um, you can even come in and design some new boards. I'm like, I'm soliciting uh, people's ideas for new boards. During the beta, I did that. And a bunch of the boards that are in the game are things that were designed by uh, our community. So if that kind of stuff is fun to you, like you should come and hang out. We just also share a bunch of goofy RPG jokes and <laughs> stuff like that. So um, we got a fun community there. Um, and we also have a link to our newsletter on that page um, where you can hear from us on updates that we're going to be doing for Roundguard and our future games at some point. <laughs> Perfect. So yeah. Thank you for sitting out with me. I'm excited to look forward to what Roundguard becomes next couple months, and then I'm excited to see what you guys do next. To see, do you guys next do? We'll say, we'll say, like a Salatero clone. Do you guys do whatever, whatever? <laughs> Maybe Minesweep. We'll you should, you should modernize roguelike yeah. Minesweep. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll write that down. <laughs> Thank you so much. This podcast was a product of the SWW Show. You can find more at the SWWshow.com or Facebook.com slash the SWW store or Twitter.com slash SWW. You can find out more about Mike at Mikey underscore Maroney on Twitter and more about AJ at Locevor on Twitter. Remember, new episodes come out twice a month, one focusing on the new entertainment news and one focusing on movie club, so new and an old movie. You can find out more again at the SWWshow.com. You can find the show on podcast services around the globe.